Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, Matthew 3 starts on page 808. Listen as I read God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Well, let me just say a brief word of thank you to the Tartar family for rolling with the punches there. I'm told the whole soundboard went down, so... Uh, it wasn't their fault that the mics weren't on, and uh, what a reminder it is that we gather here every Sunday, and we are dependent in so many ways upon technology and things like that. Also, what a, rem a great reminder that at last year's annual meeting, we voted to spend some money on getting a new soundboard. That's still on its way. So case in point, uh, money well spent, and we will be glad when that arrives and is installed, thanks to all those who kind of rushed to get things reset back up and running. 
Before I pray, I also want to just give uh, another quick uh, announcement just by way of update. A few Sundays ago, uh, I told you that we were going to have a student ministry candidate here uh, visiting with us. Uh, so this past week, uh, we had Evan Petrus with his wife, Charity, and their son, Omar. Uh, and they spent almost the whole week here uh, interviewing, candidating with us for this uh, the open position director of student ministries. We had a wonderful time uh, as the elders, the staff, the st student ministry team had a wonderful time getting to know uh, Evan. And so we are glad to announce that we have extended an offer to him and he has accepted. We're very grateful for that. Once uh, Evan and family arrive, that will be the first time in, uh, in years that we will be kind of considered fully staffed, which is uh, really exciting. I don't have an exact start date for you, um, but you can continue to just pray for God's provision, pray for the Petrus family as they uh, prepare to kind of announce their departure to their current church family and you know, list their house and sell their house and find a place here and all those things that come with uh, a move and a transition like this. I would just encourage you to continue praying for them. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help as we hear from his word. God, we do thank you this morning for your continued provision for our church. We thank you for the provision of our entire staff team, but especially now we thank you for providing the Petrus family. We pray for them as they transition uh, to being here. And God, we're just reminded, we are reminded of your faithfulness to us in so many ways, God. And we thank you as well for not leaving us in the dark, but speaking to us, for giving us your word, providing your word as a light to our path. And so now, God, I pray that you would cause your word to be effective in our minds and hearts, cause it to be effective in the life of our church. God, would you, even in my imperfection, would you cause your word to do its perfect work in us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know some of you have heard of the Babylon Bee. It's a Christian satire website. They like to kind of poke fun at things that we often do at church. It's not meant to be mean. It's all done in good fun. One article is titled, quote, Congregation Prepares to Sing Joy to the World Four Sundays in a Row. One fictional kind of pretend member of a fake church comments like this. He says, quote, you do what you can to prepare, but every time it still takes you by surprise. You're just singing along to normal worship songs and then bam, a Christmas tune. The article continues, according to him stats, which is made up. According to Himstats, a shocking 57% of churches sing this song, Joy to the World, every Sunday in December, with many churches singing it both with, as the opening and the closing song. While most Scrooges and Grinches simply white-knuckle their way through the hymn, 
Others have developed more complex coping strategies such as pretending to get an important phone call or going into the restroom and sitting in the stall for a few minutes. Now, thankfully, nobody here actually feels that way about Christmas music in general or joy to the world in particular. There's a lot of irony here, and it's intentional. It's meant to be ironic, partly because of all this talk of, of having to prepare yourself for Christmas music, when in reality, it's the music that's actually supposed to help us prepare for Christmas. But the bigger irony here in this story is the song that they actually chose to single out. Joy to the world. And I say it's ironic because Joy to the World wasn't even originally written as a Christmas song. It was written by an English pastor named Isaac Watts. He wrote it in the year 1719. He wrote it based on Psalm 98, but he wrote it for the church to sing it year round. It was based on these words, as I said, Psalm 98, rather, sorry, which says this in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I mean, this is a call for every single aspect of creation to prepare, to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. So you can see how eventually, eventually this song became associated and well suited for singing at Christmas time, even as we sing the words, let every heart prepare him room. It's a fitting song for us to consider on this third Sunday of Advent. Not simply because Advent is all about preparation, but because here in our passage this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, this is a passage that maybe isn't typically thought of as an Advent story. Here we come to this strange scene with this John the Baptist guy dressed all weird, eating weird things, dunking people in the Jordan River, and then Jesus himself coming to be baptized you may not think of this as a typical Christmas story, but trust me, it is every bit as important for understanding what Christmas is all about. And I say that because it is a call for us to prepare. It's a call for us to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. But just like we might expect by now in Matthew's gospel, there's this, this unexpected twist. You see, Matthew is trying to help us prepare room for the arrival of the Lord. But then in a very surprising way, what we see is that when he comes, precisely when he comes, he is the one who is actually preparing room for us. Listen, friends, the lesson that we learn as we think about preparing for Christmas, the lesson we learn is this. Repentance is necessary but so is a representative. 
Friends, repentance is necessary, but so is a representative. And by the time we leave here this morning, I hope to have shown you just how important and necessary this thing called repentance is. But every bit as important as that, I want you to know what it means that we have a representative and why that, why the fact that we have a special representative unlike any other, that should be an incredible source of joy in your life, especially during this time as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. So I want to show you this in two parts. First, repentance is important. We see that in the first part of the story there in verses 1 to 12 where John the Baptist prepares the way. I mean, if you've been with us through this series now, some three decades have gone by since the the miraculous birth of Jesus, since the, the Magi, those wise men came with their gifts in search of the one who was born to be king of the Jews, and even since that escape, that wild escape by night to Egypt and back some three decades, and yet still no king, no kingdom. And suddenly this strange man with a new message comes on the scene. Actually, it's an old message, but it's an old message that is fulfilled afresh in what unfolds here. I mean, this guy, John, comes calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, the kingdom of heaven, that's just, a, that's just the very thing that everyone then was, was waiting for. When you hear kingdom, don't think like... Uh, a physical place or a location. The idea of a kingdom was the very rule and reign of God, something that was, even then, it was already an assumed reality going on in heaven. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, heaven is that place where where God's rule not only exists, but it exists in a way that is absolutely obvious and uncontested by anyone, unlike it is on earth. And so when John says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what everyone would have heard him say was, was get ready. Get ready because the rule of God that exists in heaven is coming down and arriving here where it, it, where it has been contested all this time. And the only way the kingdom would come is if the king of that kingdom would come to bring it which is the very thing that John is telling the people to prepare for. That's why Matthew tells us that John is this one spoken of in Isaiah. Let me read to you the full passage from Isaiah chapter 40, which says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a a highway for our God. God, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Hundreds of years before, Isaiah is looking forward to a day when the the very elements of the created order around us are called on to prepare for the arrival of the Lord, even the rocks and the hills and the plains. I'm not going to 
On one hand, on the one hand, this kind of helps explain what's going on out here in the, in the wilderness, in the place of this, the desert where all this rough terrain is. And this explains why John's out there, this guy who's dressed funny and eats weird things. The point is he's dressed like a, like a prophet. He's dressed like the prophet Elijah because he is solely focused on the mission that God has given him. He denies himself these luxuries and just eats honey and bugs because his chief message is to declare the necessity of repentance to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. Look, in some ways, even though this is a strange scene, the concept shouldn't actually be all that strange to us today. I mean, I think we all just kind of know preparations must be made when someone's arrival is anticipated. I mean, that's true of almost just anybody. Like right now, I want you to think about just the state that your present home is in. Like what if after our service ended, I came up to you and I said, oh, hey, how's it going today? Guess what? I'm going to come to your house for lunch right after the service. Let's go. Right? You'd immediately be thinking like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Uh, hey, why don't you let me get a head start? Like, why don't you let me go and like just get there like a few minutes ahead of time? You know, I, I, maybe not everybody. Like, there's there's some of you who like if you told me there's a few of you like if you told me you come to my house today, like maybe I wouldn't do anything to prepare because it's like okay, we're close enough, we're practically family. You know, we you know that we have dishes out on the counter and clutter out on the dining room table. But for for most of us, almost anybody else, if we're not really familiar, really close, even if you're not some like special person with a high place of honor, you're going to go home and you're going to prepare things in your home. You're going to do the dishes, put them away. You're going to put all the stuff in that junk drawer that everyone has in their kitchen or somewhere. Because everyone knows preparations must, must be made when someone's arrival is anticipated. That's exactly what's happening here. Maybe you're thinking, well, then shouldn't they be at home rather than out there in the wilderness? Shouldn't they be cleaning up their kitchen, pushing all that stuff into the junk drawer? Or maybe more literally, maybe they should be out there in the wilderness. If that's the place of the Lord's arrival, maybe they should be out there doing exactly what Isaiah says, literally with these kind of ancient ox-pulled excavators, flattening out the hills, filling in the valleys, literally constructing a highway, kind of cleaning things up so things look nice. Well, not really. Not really, because the whole point is that repentance is necessary. And so what they need to do is rearrange the furniture that is in their hearts and declutter the junk that is in their hearts as God comes to arrive to be amongst them. That's why they're not home cleaning their kitchens. They're out there building a literal highway. They're doing this thing that John introduces to us called baptism. You may think, oh, yeah, 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 we know, we know what baptism is. I mean, we just saw baptism earlier today, but friends, don't be confused. The baptism that we just saw today is a different kind of baptism than the one that we see here unfold. The, the baptism we saw earlier today looks back on the death and resurrection of Jesus and says that, that I identify with him in those things, but this is a different kind of baptism. This is a baptism before Jesus has done those things that is designed to prepare for him coming to do those things. I think sometimes we forget 
that before baptism was a Christian thing, it was actually a Jewish thing. Not something that Jews did on a regular basis. I mean, yes, there were things like ceremonial cleansings as the Jews went to the temple to worship. That's not what baptism was, though. No, baptism was always understood to be a one-time rite of initiation. In fact, when, when Gentiles, when non-Jewish people from the nations would convert to Judaism, they would undergo a lot of things, but the final thing, like the last final moment of their conversion to Judaism would be baptism. So what's going on here is that there's this initiation of a whole new movement that's beginning out here in the wilderness, this repentance movement characterized by coming and confessing sin wading into the waters as a way of saying that, that they needed to be cleansed and forgiven of their sin in order to prepare for the coming of the Lord and friends. That is actually part of the beauty of this story and why this is an Advent story. I mean, yes, in one sense, it is absolutely appropriate that the created order should, should rearrange itself to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. But listen, it's not really rocks and hills that the Lord's coming to be with, is it, at the end of the day? At the end of the day, the reason why this baptism as a confession of sin, as a means of repentance, as a means of saying, I am turning away from sin and self-dependence, and I am bringing my very heart open before the Lord, saying I need grace and forgiveness as a means of anticipating his arrival because the whole point of his arrival is not for him to be with the elements and features of nature. The whole point of his arrival is to be with us. Listen, friends, that's what Advent is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. The, the Lord himself coming down, the king bringing the long-awaited kingdom so that he can be with us, so that we might be with him. Repentance is necessary as preparation for the arrival of the Lord. But let me just say a quick word about this repentance before we move on. I mean, repentance is not just necessary. Repentance also must be genuine. I mean, listen, there is absolutely a picture here of genuine repentance along with that. There is a, a warning here that we don't confuse genuine repentance with general religiosity. I mean, look at John. He notices that the religious leaders have also arrived at this Baptism, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to continue to see these two groups come up again and again throughout this gospel. But here, he basically sees them. He calls them out by telling them not just to, don't just show up at this ritual, but he says, make sure you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says in verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, John is somehow able to perceive that even as these 
these people with the best religious pedigree. They're showing up to kind of check out this, this baptism of repentance, but they're showing up and treating it as some kind of mere ritual. John is able to perceive that at the end of the day, what they're trusting is their own religious pedigree. I mean, they know the story that God chose Abraham and promised to bless his descendants and offspring. And so they're thinking to themselves, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, maybe we're getting ready for the coming of the Lord. But if God shows up, let's be honest, we all know he's going to save people like us, right? What John is saying is as soon as you begin to presume... As soon as you begin to presume upon God's grace in that way, that if he's going to show up and, and, and save and pardon and give grace to the likes of someone like you, based ultimately because you are someone like you, then you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the whole thing. Which, as I said, I think contains a dire warning for us, especially those of us here who may be rather familiar with general religious things. And I say that to all of us here. I say that especially to those of us who maybe are here this morning. You're younger. You're, you're here every Sunday because your parents are here every Sunday. This just becomes a thing that you kind of do. There is a warning that you do not get to the place that you begin to presume that just because you are in a family that shows up, that you are ready for the arrival of the Lord Jesus. That's not just true of those of us who may be kind of around these things or even for those of us who may have come up in these things. I mean, even those of us who look back on some kind of particular religious experience in our lives. Friends, our past religious performance is not what prepares us for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may have had a really powerful religious experience one day, perhaps when someone invited you to pray a certain prayer or to walk down a particular aisle. But friends, those aren't the things that mark our genuine readiness for the arrival of the Lord. It's repentance. It's repentance and genuine repentance. And even then when we hear that word, that's one of those, that's just one of those like religious words. I mean, so often I think when you and I hear that word repentance, we think that it's just yet another call for us to do our best to clean ourselves up, to get our act together so that God might be so inclined to accept us. But friends, this whole picture of preparation that we see here goes entirely against that. Our repentance, genuine repentance, is all about our being honest about the fact that, that unto ourselves, by our own power, we are not prepared for the Lord to come down and enter into our lives how they are. We need his grace. Which is also the whole point of this story. 
It's not just that repentance is necessary, but so is a representative. I mean, even as John is there baptizing and he's preaching that there is one who is coming after him, who is not going to just, just baptize as some sort of outward ritual. He's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, and he is going to separate all of humanity into one of two categories, those who are ready by way of genuine repentance and those who are not. And even as John is standing there preaching this call to repentance, that's when this representative comes on the scene. We see that there in verses 13 to 17 where essentially Jesus takes the job. Look, I know that might sound like a crude way of saying it, but we really need to see what's unfolding right here. So just try to picture this. John is there in his strange garb, baptizing people. I think, there's, I think we're supposed to imagine that there's lines of people coming out to be baptized by him. And then suddenly John stops in his tracks as he looks up and sees right there in line to be baptized. His eyes meet Jesus. Now, I kind of like letting my imagination run a little as I picture John processing what he sees. This, I picture him here with this look on his face as he's looking at Jesus going like, bro, what are you doing? And Matthew even tells us that John actually tried to prevent this. He, that John actually says to him, no, 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 no. Jesus like, look, if anything, this should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And then we hear for the first time in Matthew's gospel, here in the third chapter, in Jesus' very first words recorded in this Story. This is the first thing that Jesus ever speaks in John's gospel. As he comes on the scene, he walks up to John, he wades into the water, and he says, let it be so now. Let it be so now for thus, meaning in this way by you, John, baptizing me, let it be so now, because in this way, it is fitting for us. It's fitting for us, me and you, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, look, I don't know about you, but this has long baffled me. Like, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. This has long puzzled me. If you've been around Christianity any amount of time, you, it may have made you curious as well. I mean, why would Jesus get baptized? I mean, not only would why, well, not just why would he get baptized, but like, listen, friends, every gospel writer, all four gospel writers include this preparation of John the Baptist and Jesus coming to him to be baptized. I mean, Two of the gospel writers don't even tell us anything about the actual birth and infancy of Jesus. They're content to actually leave that out, but they're not content to leave this out. This is that significant that all four gospel writers draw our attention to the ministry, the preparing ministry of John, culminating in the baptism of Jesus itself. And we say things like, oh, well, it's right here. I mean, you know, he tells us it's to fulfill all righteousness. 
okay, but what does that really mean? I mean, how often do we really stop and think about what that really means? And listen, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're not too familiar with the Bible, maybe you're not too familiar with Christianity, maybe you're wondering like why I would think that we should think that this might be that weird. Again, it's so important that we take both these halves of the story together because each one helps explain the other. I mean, remember the whole point of John's baptism, it's been very clear, the whole point of John's baptism was for repentance. Remember, baptism was always about initiation. So it's about initiation into this movement of repentance, into this movement, the whole point of which was to publicly confess your sinfulness, which is why it's so odd that Jesus does it, because the the uniform, consistent teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus was the sinless Son of God. So why would Jesus... Why would all four gospel writers go through great lengths to show us that Jesus would take part in a ritual that's all about confessing and turning away from sin and being washed clean from sin? I think sometimes we treat it like a, like a technicality. You say, oh, well, you know, the people were supposed to do it. Jesus wasn't sinful, but he was supposed to do everything right. And so even though he did need to, he did it anyway. And I think that completely misses the point. That completely misses the point. There's a reason why we need to see, all four gospel writers want us to see, that this is the way that Jesus begins his ministry. This is Jesus' first open, public, intentional, volitional act as a grown man that demonstrates his own self-understanding of his own intentions and purposes to enter into our situation and to take sinful humanity onto himself. This is Jesus saying to us that he intends to take on the entirety of our situation onto himself as our representative. Listen, it's not as if like the eternally existent son of God suddenly finds himself just alive in human flesh and then all of a sudden he gets he gets old enough to like have real cognitive awareness and he just kind of says to himself, well, I guess I'm one of them now. I may as well just kind of go ahead and rescue them while I'm here. Well, friends, Jesus finding himself in human form in and of itself doesn't make him our representative any more than, any more than finding yourself living next to somebody else makes that person your spouse. No, there's got to be a, there's got to be a ceremony. There's got to be intent must be declared. The the I do's have to be said, and without the I do's, it's like it didn't happen. I mean, we learn that even from that greatest movie of all time, The Princess Bride. I know it's not a Christmas movie, but maybe it ought to be. And there's that scene in The Princess Bride when. Princess Buttercup is finally reunited to her love, Wesley, the man in black, and she sees him. She immediately begins apologizing to him because she was just forced to marry the evil Prince Humperdick. So she says, oh, Wesley, will you ever forgive me? Wesley says, what hideous sin have you committed lately? Buttercup says, I got married. 
I didn't want to. It all happened so fast. Wesley said, Wesley says, never happened. What? Never happened. She says, well, but I did. I was there. The old man said, man and wife. Wesley says, did you say I do? She says, uh, no, I think we sort of skipped that part. He says, well, you're not married. You didn't say it. You didn't do it. And without the I do, it didn't happen. And the whole point of Jesus' baptism as he is wading into those waters, this is Jesus walking the aisle and saying, I do. He's saying, I do to his father in heaven. He's saying, I, I voluntarily, willfully, joyfully take on the full responsibility of these people that you have given to me. I solemnly swear to take on the entirety of their situation on to myself. I promise. And he's saying to us, he's saying to every single one of us, I have come down to step into your particular situation. Friends, all those people that day that went into the water, I mean, just try to picture it. I'm not trying to be over literal here, but just imagine as every one of them went into the water, their, their sinfulness was coming off into the water and Jesus steps down into that same water to take all of it onto himself. But listen, here's the really incredible part of all this. As our representative, he not only takes on what is ours, but because he does, he is now able to give us what is already his. And what is his is put on beautiful display right here as Jesus, Jesus comes up out of the water. Matthew tells us that when he does that, immediately he says, the heavens themselves open up. The spirit of God descends like a dove onto Jesus. And there is a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And listen, we need to take just the, the value of these words at face value, just for what they say, but we also can't miss that, that what God is doing here, what God himself is saying as he speaks from the heavens, he's actually mashing together two Old Testament passages. He's taking Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42, and he's bringing them together. Psalm 2 speaks of the king, God's anointed king, who is also his son. He says this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is a statement of identity. And he says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I mean, the point of the Old Testament passages is to let us know that this servant son is the savior king that they've been waiting for. But friends, it's not just to say that this is fulfilling Old Testament stuff. Again, I mean, don't just miss the face value of the words. God the Father is in heaven declaring his heart, declaring 
his love, declaring his affections for his son. And he demonstrates that by by giving him the spirit. The spirit of God descending upon Jesus is, is God's way of saying, I want to prove to everyone that this is the one whom I love because I give him my very spirit to be upon him and in him and with him. And the father does that as an expression of his love. And friends, don't forget what John just preached. Just moments before John himself is shocked by looking up and seeing Jesus standing there, he said, there is one coming after me who's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, it's not just the case that Jesus himself has given the spirit from his father as a sign of his love, but Jesus, by becoming our representative, by taking on all of our situation, he is also the one who can give us his situation. He is the one who can give us the very same spirit, which means what is true of him becomes true of us. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent is all about, the arrival of our representative who comes to bring us into the unbreakable love that the Father has for the Son, and we get to experience that too. We get to experience that too if we come to him in repentance. If we come to this same one who came to us and lay our lives before him, he promises to come in to our lives and to bring us into the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Repentance is necessary, but so is a representative. And it's the second one that makes the first one matter. It's only because we have such a perfect representative that even our imperfect repentance can be effective. Because it's not the strength of our repentance. It's the strength of our representative. Friends, that's why this is an Advent story. That's why the season of Advent isn't just marked by preparation, but it is marked or it ought to be marked by joy. Even singing joy to the world, singing of the wonders of his love displayed in the Advent season. Let's pray. God, even now as we come to the table that you have prepared for us, would you help us? Help us to prepare our own hearts by reminding us of the representative we have in your son, Jesus, born to us at Christmas. We ask in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Church, let's spend a moment in silent reflection.